welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. So some of you might already have noticed that we've published the rural report for this year. It's a really interesting magazine. If you haven't already checked it out, I really recommend that you do. For this podcast, we'll be taking a special look at how rural property owners could capitalize on their natural assets, which came up in the report, and how they can also boost their income given that COVID-19 has wiped out income streams such as weddings and tourism. We'll hear from the editor of the Rural Report, Andrew Shirley, and Knight Frank Associate and Agri-Consultancy expert, Tom Heathcote. We're also lucky as we have two special guests on the line today, Roy Cox, who is a States Director at Oxfordshire-based World Heritage Site, Blenheim Palace, and Ed Brown, bioagroecologist for H.L. Hutchinson. Do stay tuned as well until the end as Knight Frank's Global Head of Agriculture and Investments, Clive Hopkins, joins the show to share his perspective on the challenges farms and estates are facing. So Roy, thank you very much for joining us. Would you be able to tell us a bit about your role as Estates Director for Blenheim Palace? Yeah, my role here at Blenheim as Estates Director is looking after everything, or the vast majority of what we do outside of the palace itself. So we are a large visitor attraction, a big holder of property and a landed estate together which is quite a unique blend of landed estates, particularly for this part of the UK. So it's quite a a large role encompassing a number of different things. And I think we're going to come on to some of those challenges in today's topics. Thanks, Roy. Ed, welcome to the show. What can you tell us about your background as a bioagroecologist? I've been in consultancy agronomy now for seven years, the last five of which with Hutchinson's. And I have moved progressively into more soil consultancy and and more latterly regenerative agriculture. So yes, exciting new stuff. Thank you, Ed. Angie, moving on to the Rural Report, can you tell us a bit about the focus of the report for this year? Well, we've been doing the Rural Report for 10 years now, but it seems to me that this edition really comes at a pivotal point for agriculture and rural property owners. We're leaving the European Union. We've had COVID-19. So there's an awful lot that our readers, rural property owners, farmers, estate owners need to take on board at the moment to plan for the future. So to help them go through that planning process, what we created was what we called the five C's, five key things that they need to be thinking about when they're thinking about the future. So things like natural capital, carbon, communication, cooperation and community. So we really wanted to bring all of those things together in one publication give our readers and our clients the best guidance we could to help them plan for the future. So Tom, it would be great to hear from you just on the key challenges that are affecting rural property owners right now and what you think those are in terms of the short-term issues and longer-term challenges. Well, I think that in the short term, the issues that are affecting a lot of farming and landowner communities are around uncertainty created by the forthcoming agriculture and the environment bill whilst there is some indication as to what those bills will contain there's still a lot of uncertainty around those so there's also a lot of uncertainty around the outcome of the brexit negotiations and the trade deals and we've seen in the paper at the minute there's a lot of discussions around possible u.s trade deals and implications of those so those are kind of the short-term things really affecting rural businesses in the longer term though the key overarching issue for me is climate change and that is going to have quite a substantial impact on businesses both positive and negative in the longer term. So do you think it's fair to say that Brexit has sort of receded as a big issue for farms and estates at the moment? We saw in the rural sentiment survey that 55% of respondents said no to an extension. So do you think they just want to get on with it now? 
I think they do want to get on with it now. Despite the uncertainties, I think, yes, you're absolutely right. They do want to get on with it. But there's still a lot of questions that need answering. But I think it's great that actually the response from that Rural Sentiment Survey is saying that the majority want to get on with it now. And you mentioned, obviously, sustainability has risen up the agenda as a major issue. I mean, how long would you say that that's been the case? Is it something that you think has been, particularly in the last year to 24 months, has been a particularly strong issue? I think it's an issue that's definitely growing in importance for rural businesses. I think, though, that's been driven by the information that it contained in the draft environment bill and also the UK's net zero targets. I think it's been those sort of three key pieces of information and documents that have really driven this real surge in sort of businesses being aware of their sustainability and wanting to improve it moving forward. So the ONS reckons the UK's stock of natural capital is worth around £1 trillion. So how do you think estates can make the most of their assets? Well, I think the first thing that I would say to this is that we mustn't forget that natural capital underpins 90-95% of all sort of rural and farming businesses is what their businesses are physically built on. And it's responsible for their productivity and their outputs, sort of both directly in terms of the soil produces a lot of the outputs for a lot of the farming businesses, but also for those of businesses which are diversified and have tourism, etc. The public, etc., they're coming to the countryside, to rural businesses, and that is a natural asset which they are using. So I think we mustn't forget the importance of it to day as well as looking for its value in the future. For me, I think the first thing businesses should be doing now is actually recording what they've got. So to do that baseline survey and understand that. And I think until you understand that, it's very difficult then to make a plan moving forward and how you're going to leverage it. That assessment of it doesn't have to be complicated and a lot of the data farmers will already have collected for the other sort of surveys which they're required to do annually and there's a lot of free information and data sets available off the internet. So my message on that would be realise its importance today for the day-to-day businesses and then start the process of recording it so that you're making a start. And in terms of how COVID might have affected plans and things, I mean do you think that there are any differences in, ha- in terms of how you think farms and estates need to behave in terms of the situation they find themselves in now? I mean, I think what COVID has highlighted is, to me, the key message really is about the different income streams and sort of the structures of farming and rural businesses, really. For the last sort of 15, 20 years, the message to a lot of rural businesses has been diversify, diversify, diversify. And so a lot of businesses have responded to that positively and have invested into other sort of profit centers based around tourism, leisure, etc. And they've often sometimes sort of gone away from that core farming activity. And I think now, though, they realize that when you have a shock event such as COVID, it's when they slightly come unstuck. And so I think the message really is that businesses need to have that balanced portfolio of risk and a balanced portfolio of income to give them more resilience to these sort of events, which are going to unfurl again in the future, I'm sure, at some point. Thanks, Tom. Roy, moving back to Blenheim Palace, you've got a very interesting initiative there called the Natural Health Service. I just wondered if you might be able to tell our listeners a bit about it and how you view that as a way to make the most of your assets on your estate. Yeah, no problem. So it links into the wider natural capital debate. It's part of the ecosystem services that you can actually provide in in recreation and cultural aspects. And interestingly, we just had our our first natural capital assessment done, which I may come on to a little bit later. But the Natural Health Service itself is an aim of ours through partnerships to demonstrate how we, landed estates, can really meet the needs of local communities by using the things that are unique to us, i.e. our land, for physical and, and mental well-being. So if we can connect that then commercially into a health service, then we're able to bring income streams into land. But I'll just sort of dwell a minute, but uh, going beyond the aims of it, and I'll say why, because it's really important, I'd say from the outset, this isn't a social experiment. This has profit at its core. This is adding value to both our property and visitor businesses. 
And when we look at the reasons why, well, society is living longer and with that is developing more long-term health conditions that traditional treatments are no longer responding to. It's becoming increasingly a government priority. And when you look at landed estates, and many of us may be developing within our communities, that social license to operate is absolutely vital. We ourselves are building GP surgeries even within, within our area. So we look at the ability to link our land into, into the healthcare as being a core part of our position within the local area. Now, Oxfordshire itself has 19 primary care networks in place, and the NHS will fund social prescribing navigators within those primary care networks. What we are looking to do is to provide programmes that those social navigators can signpost towards so that rather than being treated with a, a traditional packet of pills and being told that we'll see you then in, in three weeks' time, actually they're being given a long-term programme which will then treat their particular primary need. So within our area, that could be uh, loneliness is something that is particularly affecting this part of Oxfordshire. Isolation can be another challenge. So we're looking at setting up walking groups and also forest groups that will get people out and about in organised sectors that then aims to treat some of those conditions. And is this a service that, I mean, given the impact of COVID-19, presumably this is something you would be continuing with. There seems to be perhaps arguably more of a need for something like this. Uh, Without doubt, the need for this will only grow stronger and we will particularly see it in uh, social inclusion and we'll also probably see the group that we target with social prescribing and our health and wellbeing programmes expanding from what might be elderly and lonely to either younger age groups or working place adults. I think if you look back at the demographics affected most by the 2007-8 economic crisis, which will be small compared to perhaps what's coming down the track at us, it is the working place adults and young that that are affected the greatest by this. So we need to make sure that those who are beginning to go off the tracks actually come back onto it. I would just go back to the point of saying that this is not a social experiment. This is not something philanthropic that Fleming Palace in, in our area can do. Actually, this is generic to all landed estates who are deeply embedded into their local communities. And a, a landed estate is a unique prospect that cannot, as with many businesses, up sticks and move to a new location when conditions that it's operating in in that, that area no longer suit them. A landed estate is embedded. We've been around for 300 years. And we expect to be here for another 300 years. And many landowners and landed estates are more commonly taking that that approach. So these sorts of initiatives within your society can embed that social licence to operate within your area. And looking at this from a slightly different angle, I mean, given the economic difficulties that many people are dealing with, and of course, estates are going to be part of that. I mean, how do you think estates can capitalise on soil as an asset? Well, from my point of view, I think, and there's, of course, there's many exceptions to this, but we seem to be in a situation where there's far too much of a short-term view for many landowners and estates. We seem to be in a time of shorter-term arrangements with tenants, which leaves no real room for investment for the tenant themselves to improve things or look at better practices managing soil. And the landowner themselves just seem focused on the, on the rental check and the income from that soil purely on what it can bring in in terms of income. I think we need to, both as, as landowners and then by working with the right kind of tenants, take a much, much longer term view as to how to extract the best from their, what is their biggest asset usually, which is the soil. And whilst land values have done what land values have done, I think actually the true value and quality of soil in a lot of cases is actually decreasing. So we need to take a longer term view and, and enable both tenants and estates to invest in leaving a legacy, which is the quality of their land. 
Would you be able to just talk through, Ed, the level of expenditure that would be required to do that and also what profit might be expected as a result of investing more in quality soil? Well, sometimes the expense doesn't need to be great, but the more the pressures come on sort of cropping rotations and, and from the tenant's perspective, it's always aiming for the sort of higher margin crops all the time to pay the rent. But if they could be given the opportunity to stretch those rotations, bring in some alternative crops, some nutritional building crops and cover crops, then they can make a lot, an awful lot of progress in soil quality, which is actually benefiting the estate, not just the tenant. Roy, would you say quality soil is a big focus for Blenheim Palace? Blenheim is around 12,000 acres in total. We store in our soil around 450,000 tonnes of carbon, which is worth approximately £31 million using the 2020 UK government carbon calculations. And we sequestrate approximately 1,400 tonnes of carbon each year. So just to put a value on that, because that all sounds lovely of lots of figures, a value is, is just under £100,000 a year in carbon sequestrated just purely by our soil at the moment and that's without doing anything particularly special to it. So whilst I I can't claim to be an expert on regen agriculture or or the various merits for it, I, I think anything that can improve your ability to sequestrate soil and once you have begun to measure it, you can then explain it and we can put a price on that then the natural capital debate, as many are having at the moment, becomes very interesting. So that that is a key part of how we see our soil being managed. Clearly, as soon as you bring income into your carbon sequestration, it actually makes your conversations between landlord and tenant or farmer and landowner far more meaningful as well. Because unless you can put a measure on that, a lot of the talk we have at the moment around soil's ability to sequestrate carbon is very generic. You need to put a value on it and that allows us to have serious conversations. So we've got Clive Hopkins now on the show. He's Global Head of Agriculture and Investments at Knight Frank. Clive, thanks for joining us. It would be great to hear from you, having spoken earlier in great detail about the quality of soil and how important that is for estates. I just would be keen to know if that is something that's actually even asked during sales processes. And do you think buyers are actually aware of things like the quality of soil? We're in a changing world as we speak. I've been in this market now for 35 years and soils have always been at the background of people's interests. But with the onset of the amenity buyer, who were looking for lifestyle as opposed to productivity and profitability. It was really the type of estate or farm that they were buying rather than the quality of of soil that they were buying into. Farming businesses and farmers were obviously interested in what was underlying their asset and the capability of what they could grow and how much they could grow. But what we're seeing, the big change we're seeing at the moment, is with the onset and interest in the environment and climate change, we're seeing a different aspect coming into the market. And that is where I think the the quality of soil and carbon is going to become ever more important for both buyers and investors. This is underpins, I think, long-term future of farming. It impacts how we're going to farm and the, the focus on reducing carbon emissions and increasing sequestration is underpinning the government's policy at the moment. So retaining soil carbon is a critical part of the productivity of a soil. And we're seeing that already. We sold an estate just before Christmas, a large estate in Scotland, which we had previously sold eight years ago. Eight years ago, the interest in that estate was just in the farming, the sheep, and the sporting, the deer. Just before Christmas, when we sold it, the underlying interest, without exception, was in the opportunity to rewild, 
and to plant trees, which all links back to the soil and what you can do with it. That's really interesting. So do you think, given that evidence, I mean, do you think that will continue to be a theme? And do you think that the quality of soil will really impact land prices going forward? Yes, I do. I mean, land prices, a quick glimpse of the 40-year history of land prices. The majority of my career, land prices hovered around the two to 3,000 an acre, and that was nationally. Then they quickly climbed in 2005, and then hit in 2008 by the global recession. They climbed to 5,250 an acre. The global recession only impacted them by 10%, 10% drop. Then we saw another surge in land into 2015 peak, where you know our national index showed 8,500 an acre. But in reality, 15,000 plus an acre was being paid for agricultural land. This has now steadied off as Brexit and political uncertainty prevailed. But now we're leaving Europe. Direct government support will go by 2028. But I think you know, land prices will hold steady and even increase in the next 10 years. But this will all be linked and there'll be a greater focus on what soils and the quality of soils and what you can do with them and also the impact you can make on the environment in what you buy. So do you think we're seeing a return maybe to sort of slightly more traditional cultures of farming? I mean, in terms of what people are actually doing on their estates now that things like weddings and hotels and tourism are more difficult. I mean, do you think we'll see a return to a more traditional way of life? I think we'll see a return, not necessarily to a traditional form of life. I think there'll be a lot more focus by landowners and farmers on diversification into agriculturally linked enterprises. The usual, when we talked about farm diversification before, you talked about, as you say, opening house weddings or uh, converting barns into offices. But what this COVID-19 has taught us is that your key asset, which is the land, if you are farming well, and producing assets, uh, crops and, and produce that is required, that is going to hold you in good stead. You know, a lot, lot of the traditional diversification enterprises have suffered during COVID. So I think you know, back to the environment, back to climate change and back to what they can get off their land is the sort of direction of diversification that we'll be going in, I think. And just taking a step back, I mean, during your career in this industry, Clive, how would you say this year compares to other years? I mean, would you say this is the most challenging year yet for the industry? Yes, I think across the board. We started 2020 with our tails high. We'd had three years of huge uncertainty politically with Brexit. End of last year, Brexit was going to happen. We had a government in place that had a working majority. And we thought we were in for a a hell of a 2020 with a lot of business going on and a lot of momentum. And then obviously COVID kicks in. That is not just a national impact, it's a global impact. And it is by far the biggest impact I've had in my 35 years in the business. Notwithstanding the last 10 years have always seemed even more hard work than ever. You know, there have been some good moments and some good markets to operate in. So it'd be interesting going forward as to how we work out of this pandemic and how it impacts on farming and land prices. But, you know, as I said earlier, you know, I do believe, you know, land is a seen as a safe haven asset. And as such, I think there'll be an ever more focus in owning it. You know, in 10 years' time, I think land will be worth more per acre than it currently is, which is an interesting aspect. And just to finish, are there any sort of important junctures, do you think, coming down the tracks for landowners? I mean, what do you think they'll be watching out for? What, what's the sort of critical thing that they're either waiting for or looking to change so they can get back to business? I think there's a lot on the horizon. I mean, the more immediate is what Brexit deal we do and how that impacts on our ability to trade with Europe, our closest neighbour and what opportunities that creates. There will be opportunities. 
what trade deals we enter into, the threat of entering into one with the USA. Will we be flooded with cheap food, chlorine washed chicken and hormone-induced beef? How will that impact on the market? By 2028, all the direct support for agriculture goes, and, and therefore looking forward, how inventive can landowners and farmers be to get themselves ready for farming in an environment where they are not benefiting from direct support? And then interest rates. Interest rates historically low, have been for some time now. What will happen to them as we come out of Europe, as we come out of this awful pandemic and move forward? Because that is going to impact on how businesses can run and impact on their cash flow, which is a very important part of of being able to run and grow a business. So there's plenty on the horizon for farmers going forward. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information.